Well, what do you make of that? Most of the Bible is, is a U, some of it's PG, but I think that's probably getting up to a 15 certificate. Um, in 2009, a war film directed by Quentin Tarantino was released. You might have seen it advertised on the side of buses. It's called Inglorious Bastards. In the plot, Nazi-occupied France, a Jewish refugee girl witnesses the slaughter of her family by the SS. Narrowly escaping with her life, she plots her revenge. And several years later, the opportunity comes. A German war hero called Frederick Zoller takes a romantic interest in this young woman and he arranges uh, an illustrious movie premiere at the cinema that she runs with the promise of every major Nazi officer in attendance and maybe the Fuhrer himself, she decides she's going to burn down the cinema around them. Meanwhile, a guerrilla group of Jewish-American soldiers are roaming France committing atrocities on Nazis. And as these relentless executioners advance, the conspiring young woman's plans are set in motion, their paths cross for a fateful evening that shakes the very annals of history. Now that is a revenge movie, a fantasy of what might have happened if the tables were turned in World War II. And understandably, the film drew very mixed reactions. One critic complained that the vengeful violence turned Jews into Nazis. A writer in the Jewish press said, the film represents a world where we don't need to worry about the complexities of morality, where violence solves everything. Now that is how some people have read this story from the book of Esther that we just read. They say that Esther would have been more attractive if she had forgiven Haman and pleaded for his life, but instead she's very happy or contented, it seems, that he gets uh, killed. And they say the Jews should not have taken up arms and killed their enemies. But I want to ask you, is that a fair criticism or is it armchair ethics? Ethical questions must be asked and Christians mustn't dodge them. We'll come to it later on. But let me say up front what I think the main point of this story is. Uh, as I've studied it, I've come to the conclusion that this is not really about revenge. It's not glorifying revenge. It is teaching us about God, about his nature and the way he works in history. This is teaching us that God is the God of unexpected reversals. He's the God of unexpected reversals, the God of the turnaround. This story shows us what God is like without him ever appearing. Shows us how he works in history. And thus it is a comfort for us in the world that we live in. I think we learn four things about God in this passage. These are themes that run throughout the book of Esther, and two of them we've come across before. But here they are. God is hidden. God is sovereign. God destroys his enemies. And God saves his people. Firstly, God is hidden. So far in this book, we've, we've heard about this uh, very fickle, extremely rich king of a global power, the Persian Empire, round about the uh, 5th century BC. He falls out with his wife in chapter 1 and his advisors tell him to do a beauty contest and find the most beautiful uh, young virgins in the kingdom and bring them all into his harem from where he can enjoy them at his leisure. So he does. And in this uh, global beauty contest, they bring in a young Jewish woman 
whose name is Hadassah, or Esther. Now, this man, this king, we have found so far in the story, is willing to be influenced and manipulated by his advisors at the drop of a hat. Somebody makes a suggestion and he goes, yeah, whatever. We've also met a man called Haman, who is frankly the Hitler of the Old Testament. Haman is promoted to being the prime minister, the number, number, number two in the kingdom behind the king. And as he's swanning around and swanking and everyone's bowing and scraping before him, one man refuses to bow, the Jewish man Mordecai, Esther's cousin and adopted father. And Haman is so furious at this man's impudence that he decides not just to have him bumped off, but to kill his entire people. That's the level of his pride, his arrogance and his violence. And the king casually agrees to this, because, partly because the Haman sweetens the deal with 10,000 talents of silver. That is tons, literally tons of silver. So the law goes out to these 127 provinces, from India to Ethiopia, that on a certain day the enemies of the Jews will be given carte blanche to destroy them, men, women and children. It is a holocaust in the offing, a pogrom, ethnic cleansing, genocide. It's, it might sound a bit pantomimish when we read it, but this is uh, horrific. And that means that God's promises to the Jews would be all but eradicated. Where is God in all of this? It's the only book in the Bible where the word God is not even mentioned. Lord is not mentioned. There are no prophets in this book. There's no reference to the Bible, overtly. There are no visions and dreams and miracles. Everything seems to rest on the whims of this fickle king and the bungling of his prime minister. And the Jews are just hanging in there by their fingernails. The light at the end of the tunnel is just the front of the oncoming train. The entire future is in jeopardy. Where is God? Now, you can imagine that behind the scenes, these Jewish people are praying like crazy praying for a miracle, but they don't get one, at least not in the normal sense of the word miracle. So they have to do all that they can in their sphere of influence, in their work, and then trust God for the outcome. They did not see God come down in power like he did on Mount Sinai, although at time, in time they saw God at work. Now let me apply this to us. Have you ever wished, if you're, if you're a Christian here today, you ever wish that you had more spiritual experiences? Perhaps you're struggling with doubt at the moment. Wouldn't it help if you just could see God or see a miracle? You know, see something extraordinary that sort of proved it all. Wouldn't it be much easier to share your faith if we could guarantee dramatic healings or miracles? You know, come along 10 o'clock on Sunday morning and we're going to heal everyone in the room. Get a full house right across from the Christie. Maybe we could just go in there and heal, heal everyone there too. What if you could uh, just speak in tongues, foreign languages, at will? Wouldn't that be great? I was talking this week to a Kurdish friend. And it was so difficult to get basic communication between us. I wish I could share the gospel with him. But I can't do it. Not at the moment. And I don't know anyone else who can. If only we could do that. We just don't seem to see God in those dramatic ways very often. Last week I was talking to a friend who leads a church in Loughborough. He told me how a man known to the church cut off the end of his thumb with a circular saw. He was rushed to hospital without the end of the thumb 
And they bandaged him up and kept him in. And after a few days or weeks, they unbandaged his hand and the thumb was whole again. And uh, everyone was surprised. Even the church who'd been praying for this man were really shocked. They didn't expect it. And the doctors apparently were holding up x-rays, you know, kind of looking at his thumb and sort of looking back at it and scratching their heads. And in the end they concluded there must have been a mistake. My friend, who's a pastor, admitted he was almost as amazed as the doctors. Even though he's a Christian and had been praying. But he added, I've never seen anything like it before or since. You see, it's just abnormal. Most of the time, God is hidden. One of the great New Testament scholars of the last century, George Eldon Ladd, used to introduce himself to his students like this. My name is Dr. Ladd. I have never had a religious experience, but I do believe in the resurrection. Esther reminds us most of the time God is hidden. He doesn't show up and do party tricks. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are not to expect and demand extraordinary experiences. Of course, God has the power to do anything he wants. And he does do amazing things from time to time. But that is not the bread and butter of Christian faith. And those who try and live on the miraculous will end up disappointed and maybe disillusioned. Some of them may give up faith because there'll come a time when you don't get the healing or the miracle that you crave. We mustn't depend on such things. God is hidden, so we don't expect to see him, although we can see him at work. The second thing we learn from this chapter is that God is sovereign. Now, sovereign means possessing supreme or ultimate power. Just think about how these events turn out. At the start of chapter 6, sorry, chapter 7, when the king and Haman go to this feast, what odds would you give Esther and the Jews if you were a gambler? I met a man a couple of years ago whose job is to work out the odds for bets in a a betting shop. Uh, He's part of a team of mathematicians who... Somehow, I don't know how they do it, work out, you know, it's going to be 100 to 1 that Ryan Giggs is going to score the first goal in this match against Man City. I wonder what kind of odds he would have given the Jews at this point, beginning of chapter 7. Esther, a young woman of uncertain family background, who lives at the beck and call of a fickle king. She's in this corner. Over here we have a devious, rich, powerful prime minister whom the king has appointed. This man is so rich that he can make a personal donation that will affect the royal treasury. What odds are you going to give them? She's trying to get the king to speak out against his own man. Also, they're not supposed to change the law. The law's gone out in triplicate all around the kingdom. You can't revoke it. So how is it going to be turned around? But what happens? This is now the third time that the king asks Esther, what is your request? And he's been won over to her by now. And his heart is moved against Haman. In fact, he's so angry that he gets up and leaves and goes out into the garden. And while the king is gone, in a pantomime horse kind of moment, Haman commits the ultimate faux pas of falling on the couch where the queen is sitting. Now, records from this, the Persian Empire, suggest that a man was not allowed to get within seven paces of a woman who was in the king's harem. So being on the couch... It's a bad move. And of course, it's just at that moment that the king comes back and he's absolutely furious. 
And then there's this cheerful eunuch standing by as one of the servants, and he just happens to pipe up at the right moment. Oh, you know, he's built a, a gallows, huge thing, right at his house to kill Mordecai. That's the bloke who saved your life. So the king's like, his eyeballs are popping out. Hoist him on his own petard. Now that's great for Haman. Not, not for Haman, sorry, for Mordecai and Esther. Not great for Haman. <laughs> but the Jews have still got the sword of Damocles hanging over them, haven't they? So then in chapter 8, there's this other extraordinary turnaround. The king gives all of the estate of Haman to Mordecai. He gives him extraordinary power and influence. He gives him the signet ring, which is a, a, a token of making political decisions. And it sets Mordecai up with this key role in what happens next. And the ki- Esther goes in and begs again. And the king says, okay, I will give you permission to make, make another law. So they give this law that overrides the previous one without revoking it. The Jews are able to arm themselves and destroy their enemies. So it's not just rescue. It's complete reversal. It's the turning of tables. Haman is not merely stopped, he is killed. The most powerful and devious enemy is put out of action. And there's no other way that this could have been made safe. That's a turnaround. And the Jews are not merely saved, but they get to destroy their enemies, which means they can now live in safety. They're able to feast in the ghetto because fear is gone. Now, all of this happened because God is sovereign. There's no human way of explaining it. See, God may be hidden, but he is sovereign. He's behind the scenes directing the action. He possesses supreme and ultimate power. What does that mean for you and me? It means that we can play our part in God's drama. We can do what we're told to do and leave the rest to him. We can sleep at night. We can trust him. God has put our most powerful and devious enemies out of action. The devil, sin and death. And God will take us to a place of peace as well. He's sovereign. And now we turn to the third thing we learn, which is that God destroys his enemies. And this is the bit where our culture has a few questions. Isn't this just kind of medieval? Inglorious? There's this bloody element, you know, they arm themselves and kill all these people. Some people say, well, you see, after all, your religion, you say it's a, it's a, it's a god of love, but at the end of the day, violence solves everything. Well, does it? A few careful points here. There's only one way to stop Haman. Haman is the Hitler of the Old Testament. To spare him would have been to let the threat continue. There's only one way, which is that if he is removed from action. The Jews use necessary force, but they don't use excessive force. They are acting in self-defense against those who've armed themselves against them. They don't destroy an entire people group or population. They kill their enemies. They're given permission to take all the plunder, all the the money and the spoils of war. But it says three times the Jews leave the plunder. It shows that they don't use this law as an excuse for looting and enriching themselves, which victorious troops usually do. And it implies also that they do leave provision for the families of those who've been killed. Now the fourth point in this story is kind of in the background, but you may have noticed when I was reading... I emphasise the word agagite, or agagite. What that hints at is, is a background in the Old Testament, that this really is not just a one-off conflict, it's part of a holy war. 
When Israel was saved from Egypt and came out in the Exodus, came through the Red Sea, Pharaoh was chasing them with his armies. You know, they went into the, into the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land. Do you know who the first tribe were who attacked them on their way out? Men, women and children, helpless and fleeing. What was the name of the first tribe who attacked them? Anyone going to answer? The Amalekites. Thank you. Amalekites. The Amalekites. And God said, uh, God decreed a holy war in which the Amalekites should be destroyed. God did that. This isn't Israel taking vengeance. The first king that Israel had was called King Saul. He had a war with the Amalekites, and God said, you've got to destroy them. But what did King Saul do? He spared the king. He saved the best of the uh, livestock and the best of the goods for himself. He disobeyed God. He allowed the king, whose name was Agag, to live. That was some 1,500 years before the events we read about here. Bless you. No, it's 500 years, sorry. Saul allowed King Agag to live. So there's a loose end in God's holy war in the Bible. So what we find here with all this reference to Haman the Agagite, a descendant 500 years later still seeking to destroy the Jews, is that God is remembering his promises and his holy war and God will finish what he started. And he kills, he makes sure that Haman is killed. This is the final chapter in an old story. Now let me just point out, this holy war is not something that the Jewish people start. It's also not something that's normally part of God's people's role in the world. Christians are never told to engage in this kind of war. We're never told to go on crusades. We're never told to uh, invo- be involved in violence. But we are told to engage in warfare. A different kind of war, but a holy one. Listen to this from Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The Christians are involved in spiritual warfare against unseen dark powers. There's another kind of holy war. 2 Corinthians 10 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the other kind of holy warfare that Christians are called to do is to engage in the world of ideas and thoughts And bring them captive to Jesus. This is a battle for hearts and minds of people. It's holy warfare for the church. But it's not crusades and religious violence. The Bible says that God, and God alone is the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God's people do not have that prerogative. It is well above their pay grade. Our captain gave us this command. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Now is that a contradiction from the idea that God is a warrior. Destroys his enemies. Only if you think it's impossible to love and forgive people. And yet yearn for justice at the same time. Think about the great heart of Jesus. Jesus cried out from the cross. Father forgive them. 
They don't know what they do. But at the end of history, people will call on the rocks to fall on them so they can be hidden from the wrath of Jesus. The most loving, the most gracious, the kindest saviour is also the one who will carry the sword of judgment. But it's not revenge. It's justice. And it will come. Esther gives us a preview of what God will do at the end of time. God destroys his enemies. There can be no new creation without a judgment. Now some people instinctively object to all this, but let me point out, we all want justice. We all want it. We just disagree on who gets punished. We know that Nazis who hid their ill-gotten monies in Switzerland and live a life of peace should have been brought to justice. We know that gangsters and warlords and others who have hidden away in tax havens, we all, know, we all want them brought to justice. People who ruled oppressive regimes, people who were involved in genocide. And in the Bible, we are assured that they will be judged. God is truly impartial. He will make sure that no one gets away with it. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian writer, theologian. He works at Yale University in America. He witnessed Serbian fighters called Chetniks sowing desolation in his native country. They herded people in concentration camps. They raped women. They burned down churches. They destroyed cities. And he reflects that people who are suffering hunger and persecution and oppression know that they can survive only if judgment will be passed against those who exploit and persecute and oppress them. Oppressed people need judgment. This is not an academic question for them. We all want justice. And the Bible assures us that the scales will be put right, evil will not go unpunished. But the terrifying thing is this. By God's standards, you and I are guilty too. Left as we are, we are God's enemies. We live our lives without reference to him. Left as we are, we, we, we are shaking our fists against God. And therefore we will be destroyed too. So let me point out the obvious. It is madness to continue a life of opposition to God, to live life as if he doesn't exist or doesn't matter. Make peace while you can. And let me ask you a simple, very personal question. Are you ready to say that you are a Christian? Are you ready to say that you are a Christian? If you met God today and he asked, why should you be spared judgment for the things you've done in your life? Would you say, I tried my best? I lived a good life? If so, you're still relying on yourself to be your saviour and your Lord. And the only outcome of that is judgment. The only answer to God is, I'm trusting in Jesus, nothing that I have done. We can be saved because God saves his people, fourthly and finally. Esther's showing us about the nature of God, the way he works in the world, the fact that he's hidden, the fact that he's sovereign, the fact that he destroys his enemies, but he always, always saves his people. It's not a revenge movie, it's a story of deliverance from oppression. And those are two very different things. At the end of the story, the Jews are living in peace, safety. They can throw a party and celebrate without fear. And what a party that must have been. God, the God of the Bible, is the God of the turnaround. The God of unexpected reversals. He will save his people because he's promised to do so. And they will be, as we've thought already in our sung worship, a people 
too big to count and made up of every tribe, language group, nationality, people group. They will not be downtrodden forever. God holds the power of life and death. Whatever the situation looks like, however desperate it becomes, however bad the odds look, God will keep his people safe and bring them to himself. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's got it under control. He's the God of the turnaround, of the unexpected reversal. And this passage that we've just read tells a story of a remarkable, wonderful turnaround, but it was not the greatest turnaround in history. That was reserved for another day. The greatest turnaround in history took place at the cross of Calvary. At the cross, something glorious and beautiful and strange happened. The judge, the warrior God, the son, the God's king, Jesus, who will destroy all his enemies, was himself destroyed. He gave himself up to death. He allowed himself the shame and the indignity of the cross in order to spare his enemies. So that is God's answer to our question about justice, is the cross. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. There is fierce justice in the Bible. We're not going to hide it, pretend it's not there. But know this, God's justice was satisfied at the cross and his anger was pacified by the death of the Son for sinners and enemies. God saves sinners. The great God, the hidden God, the sovereign, he saves sinners and anyone can be spared if they turn to him in trust and in faith. Kiss the Son, Lord Jesus, and he'll have mercy on you. Let's pray.